All right, well, where we've been thus far, just to catch up because it's been a few weeks, uh, we finally got the people of God to the base of Mount Sinai, where God shows up in Exodus 19 in fire and smoke. It's a real shock and awe display of God's power. And the whole gist of why God did that was to grab their attention. That he is a God of consequence. And therefore what he says is consequential. And he begins by speaking the terms of the covenant to the people. And we, we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that God actually said these words to the people. And these words are the Ten Commandments. So Exodus chapter 20 represents the initial and broad stroke, the most general of the terms of the covenant. And these ten commandments, these ten words, these ten laws represent God stating the moral law that is within each man, woman, boy, and girl throughout the world, but stated specifically for the context of his people. The idea of justice did not originate with the Hebrews. So yes, there are other law codes in the world. And that's fine and dandy. Every people group needs a law because people are lawless. People are selfish. People try to exploit and harm one another. And so every people needs a law. And to the effect or to the extent that the law codes of man reflect the law code of God, you see in it the echoes of the knowledge of God that is written on the heart of everyone. So don't let the claims of skeptics that the existence of things such as the Code of Hammurabi, that that somehow undermines the biblical text or its authority. No. If anything, it points to the veracity that there is an absolute truth that exists in the world, such as, you shall not murder. The source of an absolute moral truth points to an absolute moral lawgiver. And if the secularists and the naturalists are right, that we're just all a bunch of happen chance that just happened to turn into people, then there literally is no real basis for why I shouldn't seek to dominate you or you me or my people, some other people. But we all know it's wrong. And that points to the lawgiver that is God. And so God reveals his law to his people. And from the outset, God reminds the people that they are his and they are to obey this law, not in order to get right with him, but rather because they are in a relationship with him, they have been saved by him. This law is therefore to be understood as how we can missiologically represent God's glory and greatness to a world that is lost. But the Jews, according to Romans 9, got it wrong almost from the start. And because of the covenant of works, the if I work hard enough, if I do well enough, I'll be accepted. Because that is in the heart of every person, we look at these laws naturally and think, if I just keep enough commandments, if I just do well enough, or if I just do good well enough, God will accept me. And we miss it. 
You can never, ever, ever keep the law at its deepest, most fundamental level in such a way that your sins can be purged. You need a mediator. You need a savior. And the exacting toll and demand of this law is such that you should be reminded, I cannot be perfect. Many of you may have read Pilgrim's Progress. Near the beginning of the book, uh, shortly after uh, he's told by evangelists how he can be relieved of this burden on his back, namely, you just go find the, the narrow gate, enter by the wicked narrow gate. And he's going off and he finds a person who tells him that there's an easier way, that he can go to the town of legality and see Mr. Morality. And by doing so, he can find another way to be relieved of this burden on his back other than by going through the narrow gate. And do you remember what happens in the book? He goes and he points out the way to the town of legality with Mr. Morality. It's, it's up this mountain. And of course, Bunyan is, is making a depiction here of Sinai itself and how he tries to climb it and it looks as if the very mountain is going to fall upon him for, in its terror. Having just been at the Tetons, I can imagine how, if you've ever seen that very unique rugged mountain range that, that has these jagged, spiked peaks, I can only imagine what it would look like to think that the mountain itself is going to collapse upon you. And he's recounting the experience of anybody who thinks they're going to be relieved of their burden of sin and guilt by way of keeping the law. The law only serves to remind us, I can't be perfect. But missiologically, the law does, in fact, show us how we can please God and bring glory to his name and serve as a light to the world that is mired in all sorts of foolishness and craziness. And so God gives his law for that purpose. And the law is presented in two tables. The first four commandments indicate our primary duty to God to worship Him alone, to make no images of Him, to worship in accordance with truth, not our own imaginations, to bear His name, to witness about Him in truthfulness by not only our words but our lives, how He has control over our time with the Lord's day. And then the latter six commandments represent the second table of the law, which is how we need to relate to one another. And we noted with some surprise that the law begins with honoring your father and mother rather than what you would think to be a more important rule, not murdering. But we saw that the command to honor your father and mother is the command to respect lawful authority. And learning how to respect one's family sets the stage for you to respect anyone else. And if you haven't learned how to respect your family, you will respect nobody else. So it really is foundational. And on through the Ten Commandments, we see these great moral principles established. And what they're doing is they're calling for a vision of life, a vision of the sacred society that we could call the church, because we're not a theocratic nation state. But they're calling for a vision, a way of relating, a way of, quote-unquote, doing business 
that is radically different in its orientation from the way of the pagans. And so, after the Ten Commandments are given, the people say, hey, we don't need to hear God's voice anymore or else we'll die. You, you, we've seen enough, Moses. You, you go talk to him and, and we'll believe. And so Moses approaches the Lord after saying not to be afraid that God has come like this to put the fear of God in you so that you might not sin. Now, the Old Testament in general and these passages right here touch on some things of which Christians are kind of embarrassed sometimes. I mean, let's be frank. We like hearing that God comes and loves on us and loves us and wants to give us a big cuddle hug or whatever. We don't like hearing that God shows up to put the fear of God in us so that by being afraid we won't sin. We don't like hearing that. But we are creatures. And like anything else, we learn what to do and what not to do by virtue of our sensory experience. And fear is a good thing. Fear in the right place at the right time and in the right object is a good thing. Pity the fool who doesn't have a fear of a grizzly bear. Okay? A grizzly bear can tear you apart like that. Now, how, how much more than pity the fool who doesn't fear the living God? who's a consuming fire. By his goodness, he allows us into his presence, but pity the fool who approaches God as if God is just another thing. We need the fear of God to remind us that we are dealing with someone who is other than us, who is greater than us. We exist by and for him, not vice versa. And so the fear of God reminds us of this. And so at certain points and at certain places, God reminds us of who He is and exactly who we are and who we're not. And that's important for our own maturity and development. Everybody at some point needs to know who they are and who they're not. And sometimes it takes a painful lesson to learn that. But here, in this passage, that's rather long. Chapter 20, starting at verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 23, or chapter 23, verse 33 to be precise. We learn in chapter 24, this is the section known as the quote-unquote book of the covenant. These are the initial stipulations that God gives to the people of Israel through Moses that in effect are expositions and applications of the moral principles of the Ten Commandments to their unique place and time in history. And it's a section of scripture that is difficult it's confusing, and quite frankly, uh, most preachers don't even preach it. I couldn't find many real sermons about it because it's embarrassing. I mean, we're 21st century Christians. In this passage, it talks about three things that are embarrassing to many Christians. Namely, it talks about slavery. It talks about polygamy and divorce. It talks about the upcoming annihilation of the Canaanites. So in one chunk, you get some of the most con controversial topics that the Old Testament discusses, and it's embarrassing for Christians. And, and rather than diving in and dealing with it, we would rather ignore it. 
there does exist in every person and every culture this, I don't know, this arrogance of that, our, that our understandings and sensitivities are at the absolute epoch of awareness. We can't imagine being wrong in our views of what's right and wrong. Uh, just think about it. Many of you young people don't even know a time. You can't even remember back when it, it was just 15 years ago that, that, every, that basically everybody understood that homosexuality was a perversion and that to, to countenance an idea of same-sex marriage was, was almost laughable except for it being so disgusting. But now, just 15 years later, my goodness, I mean, what I just said is almost, I mean, it's, I'm a bigot in the eyes of our culture. So, in our culture, and in every culture, there's this inherent arrogance about our values, being superior. Elizabeth, uh, uh, Victorian England was famous for it. You know, they went and they, and, they, and they did all this colonial activity all over Africa, importing 19th century English values, and, and they viewed everybody else as terrible. It was incredible. On my vacation, going out west to some of these old forts, the site of the Sand Creek Massacre, the largest massacre of Native Americans, and the governor of, of Colorado at the time was a former Methodist minister who, who believed wholeheartedly in the abolitionist cause. He, he, he thought that the Africans were, were, were put upon. But regarding the Native Americans, he thought they were literally soulless. He's a product of his day. And sometimes we have these gross blind spots. But what we have to remember is that every culture exists along the spectrum of right and wrong. And oftentimes it takes time for a culture to realize its own mistakes. Sometimes a culture adopts as evil something that really is good. And sometimes a culture adopts as good what is really evil. But what we have here in these passages is God addressing these issues. And when we try to understand how do we relate to them, I think that we need as a hermeneutic to keep in mind what Jesus says concerning divorce. You may recall from our series that we completed about a year ago now on Mark, that when Jesus teaches on divorce, he says that Moses allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts. That in the law, when God legislates something, he's putting up provisions around it to regulate something that is a fact of human existence, trying to make light, or not make light, but to try to, to, to keep collateral damage to a minimum in light of human sinfulness. And so he regulates these things that are, according to Jesus, ultimately contrary to God's ideal. And so as a civil law, then, we have these commandments in place that try to regulate the sinful actions and behaviors of people to prevent worse things from happening so that, ultimately, we can move to a place where we see this wasn't God's original intent at all which is where we get to with marriage, for example. And even when you look here in chapter 21 about slavery, when you look at the three passages that teach about slavery in the Old Testament, 
you see it, it, it permitting slavery. You see it regulating slavery, but you see it regulating it in such a way that it readily becomes apparent that it's a really bad business deal. You see it regulating it in such a way that its long-term feasibility is, is, is clearly not, uh, not assumed. And what's more, you see it regulated in such a way that the rights of the slave are acknowledged and understood. And so a system is in place whereby it's not just a parasitic relationship of of utilitarianism with the owner just literally sucking the life out of the slave. The slave gets to go after six years. And the law commands the death penalty for slave traders. The law commands the death penalty for man-stealers. You see, the only way an Israelite could become a slave is if, one, they committed a crime they could not pay for, and so their slavery was basically like debtor's prison where they had to work off their debt and after six years they went free. Or if they were so abjectly poor that they could not afford to live and eat, they could basically hire themselves out as essentially an indentured servant for, again, six years. But in the seventh year, they went free. You see, that's different than what most people think. Slavery is alive and well in this world, unfortunately. In addition to the sex trafficking of which we're aware, I recently read an article where sub-Saharan Africans are literally on the slave block in Libya being sold. That's terrible. It's terrible. But as you look at these laws... They're kind of confusing because what happens is, is there's this alternating between the laws surrounding worship, the, the worship practices of Israel, mixed with the social welfare laws of Israel. And that becomes confusing. But I don't really think it needs to be confusing. I think it's sending a sharp message that for the people of God, there is no inherent distinction between how we act and behave in here and how we act and behave out there. You've heard of Sunday morning Christians. People who live like the devil six days a week, but they come in here and they act holy. I remember when I was in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, one of my uh, fellow students was serving at a church where they were struggling because one of the parishioners was a wealthy suburbanite who was a slumlord. The law of God commands that with authenticity and sincerity, you model the moral law of God in every context in which you are, not just in church. So, the world may have imposed a sacred secular divide, but let that divide in your life be obliterated. There is no place where it's okay for you to not be a Christian. God expects you to act in a manner worthy of the gospel wherever you are. Especially when you're angry. Especially when you're hurt. Especially when you stand to gain by the exploitation 
of someone else. The Israelites are repeatedly reminded that they were once slaves. And that because they were once slaves in Egypt, and they know what it feels like to be oppressed, therefore, don't oppress. Don't oppress the stranger and the sojourner in your midst. And so it calls for this radical view of life where everybody's kind of looking out for one another. You see, it sounds horrible for us to talk about things like slavery. How come God didn't just abolish slavery? He abolished murder. Why didn't he just abolish slavery? Well, imagine a world in which it's so grindingly poor that you have literally no way of providing for yourself. What's supposed to happen? Well, frankly, in real life, most of those people become criminals. I've been to Afghanistan. I've seen it. So is it, may, may it not be better then to have a, an institution in place where I can voluntarily become someone else's servant and I'm fed and I'm protected and I'm provided for? And then, according to Deuteronomy, when I leave, I'm furnished with supplies for my trip and the, and the, and the former master is to be grateful for my service because I've served him at half the cost of a hired hand? Do you see how that's a lot better to just letting poor people die in the street? I think so. But God's law touches on all sorts of topics. So you have in this passage, uh, you have in chapter, uh, in chapter 20, 22 to 28, you have the topic of altars. And God regulates the construction of altars. And we're scratching our head, what in the world? Well, many of you have seen the pictures of the temples and the and the altars of the ancient Near East, and they were ziggurats. And many of the things that God prescribes and proscribes are in reaction to the pagans, so that they do not look like pagans. God does not want the worship of his people to resemble the worship of pagans. And I do think that says something for how we do our worship. There are worship services that look literally like rock concerts. I think that God is zealous and jealous that his worship look different than the activities of the world. And so he does not want the altars used because altars were central to Jewish worship because what happens on an altar? an ever-present reminder that they need to be made right with God. And so he doesn't want these ziggurats. He doesn't want these ornate works. Use dirt or unhewn rock. He doesn't want their creativity on display. He wants them in their desperation to make something that will do the job because they need to be made right with God in that sense of urgency or else they die. But this law also says don't go up those steps because otherwise your nakedness might be exposed. Well, un understand that contrary to the nudist movement in a post-sin, post-fall world, human nakedness is generally understood to be a source of shame and emptiness and exploitation. One of the most dehumanizing things that are done to people when they get captive 
is they are stripped of their clothing and paraded around naked. That is a dehumanizing experience. And God wants his people's dignity to remain intact while they worship, not to engage in, in licentious or wild behavior. But then he goes into the laws about slavery, which we find objectionable. But I really do think when you read it, what you see here is God regulating a practice so as to make it as safe and as humane as possible. Then God talks about injuries to body. In chapter 22, verses 12 to 32, if you read it, there are three basic types of injury. There is intentional, there's accidental, and then there's negligence. And the deal is, is if you intentionally harm someone, you are guilty of sin. And the punishment you pay is depending on whether they die or they live. And yet there's, if you strike your parents, you die. Normally to die, you actually have to kill somebody. You don't get the death penalty for beating someone up in ancient Israel, unless the person you beat up is your mom or dad. Do you see how this reinforces the gravity and centrality of parental authority and family and, and the understood perverseness of physically attacking one's parents? What that means about you as a person and what you will do to other people? So it was perceived to be an imminent threat to everyone else and was treated, therefore, as a capital offense. It's a death penalty offense to be a slave trader. If you accidentally kill someone or hurt someone in myriad ways, you're responsible. If negligence is a part of it, if you carelessly don't keep your dog locked up and the dog goes and bites someone, guess what? You're liable. And the idea here is that we are responsible to protect and preserve the life and livelihood of other people. In this passage, uh, especially in regards to accidental, in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 22, you have that famous passage where two men are fighting and a pregnant woman comes out there and gets struck accidentally. And the baby comes out and there is harm and, and, and scholars fall all over themselves. It doesn't say if there's harm to who. Well, what's the point? of It's, it's talking about the baby. Otherwise, why mention that she's pregnant? But by including a pregnant woman, you have a law in one, in one case that covers what happens to if any woman is hurt as she comes out. And do you not see how that's feasible? Two men are fighting and the wife of one of them runs out to break it up or, or come to her husband's defense and she's struck in the process? That happens. And God values the life of the innocent, especially the life of the unborn. And so God institutes laws that protect. And then regarding property, my goodness, Christians are just as bad as anybody else. You know, if we lose something, we, we act like it's not our fault. You know, I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable. If something happens to someone's property while it's in my care or watch, I try to absolve myself. If, you know, oh, that, that, that stain wasn't there when I got here. Uh, my kid what didn't do that. We, we try to absolve ourselves of responsibility. And the biblical ethic is restore what's your neighbor's. This is like the ultimate 
yes in a handshake world where with integrity we're to deal with one another and if my dog comes and digs up your prized petunias I need to replace those petunias I don't need you shouldn't have to yell at me to get me to do that you shouldn't have to threaten me with the civil as a redeemed person of God whose worldview is characterized by looking out for my brother and sister if my kid is learning how to drive and he smacks into your shed, I should just fix it. And that should be the attitude that pervades our entire dealing with people. And do you see how if we've treated each other like that, you see how different that is in the world? The world doesn't do that. The world tells you when you get in an accident, whatever you do, don't admit fault. Don't say, I'm sorry. That's admitting fault. And the biblical worldview says, if you're at fault, say, I'm sorry, and how can I make it right? You see the difference? What a difference. And then, of course, famously, there's compassion to the poor. People oftentimes mistakenly think that Jews were not allowed to charge, charge interest to any other Jews, and that's not the case. If you read every single don't charge interest passage, it's to the poor. Because you want to know how in an exploitive society you grind someone under your heel and you make them a slave? You charge interest for everything they need. They're so poor they can't buy bread. Well, I'll charge you interest for it. And God's saying, give them the money as a gift. And if they're so destitute that they have to put up their very cloak, which was their sleeping garment, because they didn't have a house. As collateral, give it back. There's many ways you can make your money. But off the poor and the destitute in our midst, that's not, those aren't the backs on which we make our money. And when it talks about poor, it's not talking about people who have to work two jobs. Okay, I'm sorry, you, you may think you're poor because you have to work two jobs. That's not what it's talking about. You may think you're poor because you don't get to go on the vacation you think you want. I'm sorry, that's not poor. What, what's poor here is people who literally have nothing except the shirt on their back. People who can't eat, can't get water. Don't exploit those. But when you find anybody who's in a position of vulnerability, the law of God says take care of them especially if they're in the household of faith. Did you know that's what the New Testament tells us? Try to do good by everybody, but especially those within the church. And that's the whole thing here. This entire section of Scripture is primarily Israelites' relationship with another Israelite. The rules of the house. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are members together of one body. So if we are members of one body, am I going to nourish my hand while I starve my foot? Am I going to exalt my left ear while I cut off my right? No. We take care of each other, or we should. It's not saying that we have to be communists. That if you have a skill, you can't make a profit on it. It's not saying that. 
But when we have either accidentally or negligently done something that results in someone's harm or property loss, we replace it. That we work hard so that we, we have something to give to those who have not. And so we can help them out. This general principle, then, of enforcing the Ten Commandments in such a way that, that the welfare of the community is at stake and is seen as more important than the exaltation of my own personal agenda or profit margin. That's what the ethic of the Israelites was supposed to be. But of course, we learn that pretty much immediately they kick these commandments to the curb. But what about for us? What's the basic ethos that pervades our relationships with one another? Do we hold grudges? Did you know that in chapter 23, it talks about how you're dealing with people who are your enemy. And when it says your enemy, it doesn't mean an enemy combatant in a war. It means the person you don't like and the person who doesn't like you. Did you know that it says that you're not to find your way to stick it to them? That in fact, you're to go out of your way to help them out. If their donkey gets loose, you're not supposed to say, <laughs> yeah, and watch it walk on its weary way. You're supposed to go get up from what you're doing. Go out, take it, and take it back to them. Even though they don't like you. And you don't like them. You see, the law of God is kind of like marriage. It's not there to express love. It's there to help us when we're not feeling very lovely. And knowing what the right thing to do, when we are, frankly, not wanting to do it, that's why we need these commandments. If you do these, if you honor these commandments, you're not going to go to heaven. But you know what you will do? You will show this world that you serve a God who has already satisfied your soul's deepest longing, and therefore you can live in such a way that you reject your natural impulse to seek your own, and now you're freed up to serve someone else. And to seek the good of some other people. That's beautiful. And that's what, if they had done this, man, the whole, the whole world would have seen and been just in awe. And if our church would do this, boy, every visitor who comes here would be like, I don't care how bad the preaching is. We're going to stay here. Because palpability in expressions of love wins people. Now, today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And Jesus came precisely because these laws could not save. Jesus came precisely because people did not seek the good of the Lord or the good of other people. Instead, they sought their own. That's what idolatry does. That's what the fall does. We want to be gods, and that inherently means exalting myself over you. And because that's what happened, Jesus had to come. And Jesus had to bear on the cross the penalty for all of our transgressions. And someone had to keep the law so that when God looked at us, he could say, Aha, they are indeed righteous. So that's what Jesus did. You want to see how to truly love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself? Look at Jesus. 
Because after doing that for you and for me, he then gave up his life as a substitute for us. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not just you know, having a birthday party or something. We're celebrating the very fact that by his sacrifice, the law is viewed as kept on our behalf. And we participate in his actions on our behalf. And we can celebrate the fact that we who were once strangers and aliens, indeed enemies, are now beloved sons and daughters. That's pretty cool. Let's pray.